We look to God's Word now as we continue thinking about the Gospel of Matthew. Certainly not hard to stay with our series on this Communion Sunday as we're very close to the events of the cross, and I'd invite you to follow as I read God's Word this morning from Matthew 27. I'm going to read verses 11 through 26, the account of Jesus before Pilate. Just before this, we have that event where Judas has remorse, not repentance. The word remorse is used in verse 3. He was sorry for what he did, but not sorry in a deep, repentant way before God. And he, as you may know, went out and killed himself. Then we pick this up in Matthew twenty-seven eleven. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is, as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ, Pilate asked. And they all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Our Father, we ask that these sacred and historic things might be alive to us with truth, of what our wonderful Savior has done in our place. Help us to this end. In Jesus' name, amen. It was actually June 2nd. The anniversary of this event would be tomorrow. June 2nd, 1925. A little tiny event occurred 
within the New York Yankees baseball team that didn't seem at all important at the moment. The Yankees' regular first baseman was a popular guy. You've probably never heard of him, but his name was Wally Pipp. Wally was an everyday player, a popular Yankee. But Wally Pipp had a headache on June 2nd, 1925. And he reported his headache to the manager and said, I think I need the day off. And so the manager looked to his bench to see who would replace the regular first baseman, Wally Pipp, that day. And he settled upon a big, gangly rookie who had just come up to the team after two years in the minors and before that, graduation from Columbia University. The substitute went into the game that day and played very well, both at the plate and with his glove. He played so well, in fact, that Wally Pipp never played another inning for the Yankees because his stand-in, a fellow by the name of Lou Gehrig, played first base for the Bronx Bombers in every single game for the next 14 years. 2,130 games, a record that stood, as you may know, for a very long time. And among his many career achievements, Lou Gehrig, the first baseman of the Yankees, was named at the end of his career greatest first baseman of all time by the Baseball Hall of Fame. Some substitute. Lou Gehrig, I think you would agree, was neither a temporary nor an ordinary substitute. Well, that can certainly be said about Jesus of Nazareth in a far greater way. As we see him in this text, replacing a notorious outlaw, an infamous person named Barabbas. By the way, his name means son of the father. Many think that Barabbas was a rabbi's son, a preacher's kid. You know, it's always the preacher's kid who go bad. And he was a notorious brigand, a revolutionary leader. Well, in the place of Barabbas, the Son of God was not simply a one-day substitute. He was not simply a long-term substitute. He was an eternal replacement. And Christ becomes that for you and me as well. Anyone from all human history can know that Jesus the Son of God, will be their substitute when they come and trust in Him in full faith believing. This morning, before I proceed with this text proper, I want to just give you a bit of background on what the Scripture says about the death of a substitute. It's a very important concept in the Bible, the idea of substitution. The only reason we have throughout so much of the Old Testament all that shedding of animal blood, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and even birds, many people read that, they say, oh, that Old Testament religion was an awful religion, blood all over the place. There were a few bloodless sacrifices. Sometimes people brought offerings of grain or Uh, wine on certain occasions, those were used as thank offerings to say thank you to God. 
But the most important offerings that Moses was instructed for Israel to have were the sin offerings, the offerings that by a death occurring were recognized before the Lord as that death substituting for the death of believers who brought the animal or or slew the animal. And you may remember that when a man, a head of a house, brought an animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, one of the things he was required to do as the animal was transferred to the priest's assistants who would kill the animal, he was to put his head on the living animal and claim it as his sacrifice before it died on his behalf. So the death of a substitute is the vital concept in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Leviticus chapter 16 adds another element to it when it tells of a ritual that happens on one high holy day in Israel each year when the, on the Day of Atonement there would be two goats and one would be sacrificed, killed as a burnt offering, and the other one was actually led out and driven off into the desert, symbolically giving us the word in our language, the scapegoat. The animal that took the sins and took them away to a far place, no longer among the people. Well, this doctrine of atonement by means of substitutionary death carries over into the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9 is a chapter that summarizes Old Testament and New, really. And it says, it is hearkening back to Leviticus and telling us that what Jesus did was actually to be that goat that died. He was the sacrifice, and he was also the scapegoat the one who took the sin away. There are many, many New Testament passages we could cite on this. Galatians 3.13 has Paul saying that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, that's the first time I've used that little word for. I'm going to emphasize it a lot. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place. You see, there's this miracle of grace in which God has His Son exchange places with ruined sinners who repent and come to Him for salvation. And the substitution works in both directions, the Bible says. The believer's sin is being charged to Christ. That results in forgiveness. And Christ's righteousness comes to me and is credited to my account, resulting in justification. So the sin moves away from me, and the righteousness moves toward me. I don't think there's a better text in the whole Bible than 2 Corinthians 5.21 to summarize what many people call this great exchange. There it says, God made him, Christ of course, to be, who had no sin. Christ had no sin. God made him to be sin for us, there it is again, for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see how that little conjunction for, F-O-R, keeps showing up, reminding us of something happening on our behalf, our substitute, acting where we should have been. Well, that's the Bible concept of the death of a substitute in very brief fashion. Now, 
let's look at this text in Matthew 27 and meet it in a personified way, in a real historic incident where there was a man who represented us first in our sin, who met up with Christ, who became his substitute. Yes, he was Barabbas, apparently a revolutionary terrorist. Maybe he wasn't quite on the high level of Osama bin Laden, but that's the kind of person he was. He wanted to overthrow the government by means of violence. It's fully implied he was a murderer. He had killed people. He'd been involved in uprisings. His whole tactic was to overthrow Rome. Well, that would make him popular, of course, with with the Jewish people living in an occupied country. They wanted Rome out too. So even though this guy was murderous and violent, he would have, you know, almost like a Robin Hood kind of quality on people's minds. And they'd say, yes, we're in favor of what he's trying to do, even if we wouldn't kill people to do it. You know, if Barabbas had come in here on this beautiful June Sunday morning at Westminster Presbyterian Church, you would have noticed him. I can guarantee you would have noticed him. Even if you're a stranger here and everybody else is is basically a stranger to you, he would have stood out. Who knows how long he had been held in Pilate's jail? A while, at least. He was... He'd already been through a a trial. He was a condemned man. He was ready to die. Living in those jails, you know, you don't have your, your own little private shower to use every day or anything like that. This man was filthy. His clothes were probably ragged. I imagine he was crawling with lice, and he probably smelled pretty bad. If he had sauntered in and sat down at the end of your pew, you would have gone to the other end you would not have wanted to be next to Barabbas. And yet, there's a real sense in which the Bible puts him there in all this ugliness of both his activity as a revolutionary and even his person and wants us to understand he represents you. And your sin is just as repellent in the eyes of God as he would be physically to you this morning. Well, Pontius Pilate, we're not stressing him too much here today, but he was in a quandary, as you know. His position as governor of that territory, it was a troublesome territory, a hard place to govern. Pilate was married, by the way, to the granddaughter of Augustus Caesar. His wife briefly appears in this passage, and she actually was related to a former Caesar, so that could have been why he got this job, this sort of plum. If you did well at a job like this, you got higher preferment, you got moved to Rome itself and and rose in the government. Who knows, you could even perhaps become Caesar. Well, that didn't happen for Pilate. But here he was, bad reports about him had already gone back to Rome, you know, and letters had come back saying from Caesar, I don't like what I'm hearing, Pilate, shape up. And Pilate knew that, and he knew that getting more bad reports from these Jewish leaders, even though he was the one in power, was not a good thing politically. So he's trying to save face. He's trying to look good. And he pulls out this custom. The Bible's the only place we learn about this custom of a prisoner being offered up for the people to choose as a sort of a way of saying, you know, well, Rome is benevolent after all. Once in a while, we'll let you 
have somebody from the jail. And of course, Pilate is trying to rig the choice. Before him is Jesus, of whom he hasn't been able to find anything wrong. Several times in the other Gospels, he says, especially in John chapter, uh, the 18th chapter of John, he says, I find no fault in him. Three times he says that. I find no fault in him. Uh, why would we kill this man? I can't see what's wrong with it. And so Pilate deliberately offers the worst scoundrel in the jail. We'd call him a scumbag today if we were using our terminology. And he thinks, surely they won't choose him over this innocent rabbi. But God knew that they would choose Jesus. So great was the hatred of mankind for the innocent Son of God. There's a little-known Bible commentator German man named Frederick Krumacher who wrote about Barabbas. Let me just read a few sentences of what he said a hundred years ago. He wrote this, Barabbas was a real man, but he was much more than that. As we read the Scripture, he represents the entire human race in its lost condition, fallen from God and bound in the fetters of the curse of the law without any nobility of soul or internal worth. And Krumasher goes on saying, every prospect of escape from his miserable, his miserable fate appeared to be non-existent. There was no one to pay a ransom for him to get out. No liberation possible from a well-guarded dungeon. And so it is for us. The condition of Barabbas was desperate, and ours spiritually before God is no less so. These young people, as they became members today, the first vow they answered was, do you recognize that you have a critical need before God that you cannot meet and that it's a desperate situation? Well, Barabbas was in a desperate situation. But the man in that position and Jesus, the righteous one, exchanged places. Each inherited the other's position. The murderer's chains and disgrace and agony and death sentence came from Barabbas to Jesus, and the innocence and freedom of Jesus came to Barabbas. However much we might be repelled by him if we could meet the man, the Bible wants us to understand that Barabbas is you. He is me. And as we trust in Christ as Lord, we Change places with our Savior just as surely as this man did long ago. So thirdly, I ask you today, how have you responded to him who's ready to be your substitute? There's a true story that comes out of World War II. A Catholic priest by the name of Maximilian Colby, spelled with a K, Max Colby was a Roman Catholic priest who was taken as a political prisoner in World War II and kept in Auschwitz, where, of course, there were many, many hundreds of thousands of Jews who were executed simply for being Jews. One day, Colby, and, and bear in mind the political prisoner under that system was relatively safe. Most of them weren't killed. They were just worked to death. So Colby knew he probably wouldn't be killed. 
But he saw a group of Jews being rounded up from one particular barracks and taken off, and he knew very well, and they did too, that they would be shot and their bodies would be put in the ovens there in Auschwitz. And one man was crying out for mercy as the guards dragged him to join this group. He was telling the guards he had a wife and five children, and he pleaded on his knees for his life. Max Colby, the priest, stepped over to the guard and said, could I take that man's place? What an extraordinary request. The guard didn't know how to handle it. He took it to the commandant. And the amazing request to replace a condemned man was approved by the commandant. And they said, yes, let the fool do it. But then when that officer went back, he realized he did not want to shoot a priest. So he put Max Colby into an isolation box where he would get no food and would starve to death. And so, of course, he died. The man for whom he sacrificed himself, the Jewish man, lived to tell his story after the war. I'm not for a moment suggesting to you that Max Colby was a divine savior. He was not. He was only a man who intervened with remarkable heroism. But think about it. The great, as great an act as that was, amazing. I doubt if any of us would have volunteered in that way. It was a limited act. It, it staved off death for that Jewish man for a little while. He got to go back to his family and live however many years, but he still had to die. One day that man died. But he never ceased being grateful to Father Max Colby. The great exchange of Jesus Christ for you doesn't just delay the inevitable. It's not just an act of great heroism that gives you a reprieve. It's an eternal act, and its effects are permanent. That great exchange is spoken about prophetically in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. Once again, listen for that little conjunction, F-O-R. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was laid on him, and by his stripes we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was declared completely righteous by everyone. Judas, as he realized what he had done, if you glance at your text, chapter 27, 4, he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate pronounced him innocent. I find no fault. There was no charge. Jesus wasn't executed by a just sentence. He was murdered because no true sentence was ever brought against him and proved. He was the sinless substitute who offers that which is real and powerful and lasting in the lives of those in whose place he stood long ago. 1 Peter 3.18 says Christ suffered for sins as the just one on behalf of the unjust in order to bring you to God. You know, I have a chance to interview lots of new members, lots of people to ask them and try to get to the root of their Christian faith. 
And people articulate things differently and speak differently about who Christ is and, and what He means to them. But I find if we're really going to get to the root of the matter, we need to talk about the cross. And I will say to somebody, well, what happened at the cross? How do you understand the cross? What was going on there? And if they can tell me that they know Christ took their place and received their penalty forever, then at least I know that mentally they know what the gospel is. Mentally they know what the good news is. Then I probe a little more to try to see if that's just uh, some fact that they've learned to say, like, you know, they know that two times two equals four, or is that a fact that has lodged itself in their heart and the center of their minds in such a way that, that it draws from them all the gratitude of their life's devotion to a Lord and Savior who has done this wonderful, eternal thing on their behalf. You know, the Old Testament believer was asked to step up to the sacrifice and put his hand on it and say, this sacrifice I claim, this is offered for me. Ladies and gentlemen, whether you're a brand new Christian, whether you're a young person coming to the Lord's table for the first time today or 80 or 90 years old having come to this table for decades, each and every one of us needs to say to God in so many words today, Father, I am what Barabbas was. I deserve nothing. I'm guilty. But I come with gratitude and with faith. And I claim the wonderful substitution that Jesus Christ has done for me. And when you do that in all sincerity, then it is that the gospel of the cross will teach you how to sing, in my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, for this simple, majestic fact of Jesus Christ, our substitute, we give you all our thanks. Father, we cannot make ourselves worthy. All we can do is confess our unworthiness to you. Help us to do that, to see it and understand it. May it cause a great wave of gratitude and praise in our lives as we receive these elements and these things that Jesus has appointed. In his name, amen.